Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. This is Dan Cotter. Late last week, we taped a special episode 11 interview with Tr- Jeffrey Schwab, one of the advocates in Bennett versus Ask Me. Today, we will discuss one case each from the Illinois Appellate Court, a state of Van Dyke versus Milner, which is a fifth district case involving immunity for the police for failing to respond to a 911 call that turned out to be a domestic violence call that ended in the death of the wife in that case. The second case will be Cortez versus IU an Indiana Supreme Court that may court case that may or may not be a medical malpractice case. We'll get into that later. And the Seventh Circuit case, Wadsworth versus Cross, an FDCPA case before the Seventh Circuit in which the judges raised standing sua sponte at the argument. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that as well. We will also release special episode 13, another interview Tuesday evening. In that special episode, we will interview Jared Beasley regarding the recent argument before the Illinois Appellate Court, 5th District in the state of Van Dyke versus Milner, a case we discussed today. A lot to cover as always, Pat, so let's get started. Our first case today is the state of Van Dyke. And in this case, in the state of Van Dyke versus Milner, the Illinois Appellate Court, 5th District, heard argument in a case under the Domestic Violence Act in which the plaintiff's deceased was shot by her husband and called the police but was unable to speak. She called from a landline, and the dispatch sent aid, but the police officer forgot to render aid. An hour later, he went to the home, and when there was no answer. Dan did not misspeak. He said accurately, the officer forgot to go. Continue, Dan. I'm sorry. He forgot. Yeah. And he he was three minutes away, uh, believe it or not. So an hour later, he, he did go to the home. And when there was no answer, he called the father-in-law. It was a very small town where this occurred. The officer gained entry and found the wife dead, having been shot several times, and the husband having committed suicide. Trial court dismissed the claim, finding that in the absence of any information about the incident from the call, because it was an open line but there was no verbal, the duties under the act imposed on police officers were not triggered. Uh, This was on an open landline call, as mentioned, so with the victim not being able to speak, and when dispatch called the house, received a busy signal. Appley tried to distinguish cases where there was a history of domestic violence. Uh, there was no deposition of the deputy in this case. Uh, this is a continuation, really, Pat, of several recent cases where no liability was imposed for failing to provide aid under tort immunity statutes and the recent proposal to bring back more protection in the form of the public duty rule. At issue in this case was the Domestic Violence Act, which on rebuttal, Counsel for Appellant reminded the court had as one purpose to expand the civil and criminal remedies for victims of domestic violence. The justices and advocates also also discussed whether a subjective knowledge standard should be imposed, referencing 304A of the statute at issue that states whenever a law enforcement officer has reason to believe that a person has been abused, neglected, or exploited by a family or household member, the officer shall immediately use all reasonable means 
to prevent further abuse, neglect, or exploitation. Section 305 of the Domestic Violence Act provides protection if the law enforcement officer is acting in good faith. And that was a question here, as, as Pat and I mentioned already, uh, the officer forgot to render aid. This was an appeal on a grant of motion to dismiss, and plaintiff argued that, as is true, must take all facts and allegations in the complaint and inferences as true. Pat, thoughts on the, on this case and the oral arguments that took place? Thank you, Dan. And, and as Dan mentioned, we're going to have a special episode with uh, counsel for the appellant in this case, the plaintiff below, Jared Beasley, on Tuesday. We'll release that probably late Tuesday evening. So we'll get some more, more into the facts. And so I think today what I want to focus on are the uh, some of the issues, the, the, uh, the, the statute, as well as some of the, and put this really in context with regards to tort immunity. And this goes to um, the role that government is to play in a free society. If the government is going to take a role in providing pre- police protection, which it obviously has, then they have it. Then does they ha- do they have a duty to provide police protection? But under four one zero two, which wasn't an issue in this case, it was it's kind of sitting in the background. This case was brought under the Domestic Violence Act of nineteen eighty six, and the, those are the two sections that Dan talked about, and that's the where the fight was. But under section four one zero two of the Tort Immunity Act. All Illinois residents might be interested to know that neither a local public entity nor a public employee, and I am reading here, is liable for failure to establish a police department or otherwise provide police protection service, or if police protection service is provided, for failure to provide adequate police protection or service, failure to prevent the commission of crimes, failure to detect or solve crimes, and failure to identify or apprehend criminals. In other words, the police in Illinois- that's That's a quote. That's a quote. It's, it's I read incredible, that. isn't it? In other words, yeah. the police don't have the obligation to actually do policing. It turns out, as I, I have said in other contexts, police is also a verb. Uh, it, it's a noun, to be sure, but it's also a verb. Uh, but they, you can't sue them if they don't do the verb part of the police. Um, in, in terms of the oral argument, uh, I, I think the best argument that Mr. Beasley had was what he made in rebuttal. And Dan referred to it briefly, and that is that under the Domestic Violence Act, which is at 760 ILCS 60 at SEC, the text is to be construed liberally, uh, or liberally construed is the, is the actual language, um, in order to accomplish the purposes of the statute. And in particular, this statute, if you think about why would the legislature pass such an act, it's to curtail, prevent remedy domestic violence. Okay. Well, the police have a role to play in that, certainly. Um, And so the statute says whenever a law enforcement officer has a reason to believe and the justices were all over, well, there was a blank line. They had no reason to believe. There was no order of protection here. They didn't know what was going on. And now you're asking them to be um, omniscient in terms of what was going on inside that house. Well, the facts seem- and there was no, and there was no history in this case of domestic violence either. Right, right. There was no history um, here of domestic violence, and so he didn't have a reason to believe anything had gone wrong, other than the nine one one call and the person not able to answer. And the suggestion for well, what if the three year old gets a hold of the phone and it's a and he dials nine one one? That it's a, it's a landline, and they knew it was a landline because they called back after the the phone was dead. Right. And the, the dispatcher did. So she has the technology or he or she has the technology to know what kind of line it is. And they called back and the phone was busy. So 
obviously, I mean, the inference, and it's not obviously, but the inference one could draw certainly is that something's amiss. Um, the phone's off the hook. Something's going on. Uh, and so she, the, the police officer gets dispatched and he, again, forgets to go. Shows up an hour later and the allegation and the complaint is, is that in that in the interregnum, the, the wife had been shot once. She survived the first shot. The husband comes back sometime during that hour, the allegation is, and shoots her several more times and then takes his own life. And so the, they focused on reason to believe that that can't possibly be a, a, a permission to do nothing, which is what happened here. What the, right. uh, what the government pointed to, the appellee here pointed to, what, which is in Section 305, is, is good faith, is did they act in good faith. Uh, and I, 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 it seemed the justices were going with what the appellee was arguing, but I have a hard time understanding how you can be good faith when you just don't do your job. To, to put this in context with some other recent cases, one of which is from the 5th District and one of which is from the 1st District, is a case called Schultz versus St. Clair, which dealt with whether a, a police dis, whether you could sue for inadequate police dispatching services. There was a dissent in this case that said that the immunity that I read under uh, 4102 was curtailed by what the Emergency Telephone System Act. Uh, that it, you actually have to do the job of dispatching, that the dispatching hadn't been done. I want to get into all the facts of that case. But the, the court curtailed the, or held that it did not curtail the, uh, the overriding uh, immunity that was granted under 4102. And then you have a case, Gary versus City of Cal- the, the City of Calumet City, which is a case that dealt with uh, whether a municipality could be liable for failing to provide adequate EMS services and a person who had was suffering severe asthma and they failed to properly protect the airway and the person died. Uh, and there was an immunity there for only willful and wanton misconduct, merely negligent, which this seemed to be, wasn't enough. Uh, Dan also mentioned the public duty rule, which came up in the Schultz case and kind of sits in the backdrop and is a little different than immunity to be sure. But it's this idea that the government doesn't have a duty to provide protection to individuals. Uh, whether they're the wife in the Van Dyke case or the person suffering for asthma in the uh, in the Gary case, but rather they have a duty to provide it to the society at large, and it's grounded in the principle that um, there just isn't there's no duty owed to specific members. And then there was a special duty exception that if they did take on such a duty, then there could be a duty imposed. And the the Supreme Court in Coleman versus East Joliet. 216-IL-117-952 from 2016 uh, abolished the common law public duty rule. And now there's a bill in the Senate, Senate Bill 95, to put the public duty rule back in place with no special duty exception. Um, either you have faith in government or you don't. Either government should be liable when they fail to do their job or you or, or they shouldn't. Um, I, I think there's been a lot of, in, in the, certainly in the last year, a lot of focus on a lot of focus on uh, qualified immunity with regards to uh, the police, but qualified immunity po- applies well beyond that. That is one of the reasons why, and we'll discuss it with uh, with Mr. Beasley on on Tuesday, why they didn't bring this as a, civil, a federal civil rights claim, uh, because qualified they would have a terrible time under qualified immunity being successful in federal court uh, under under Section 1983. So they tried to bring it very, in. Very tough road. 
very, very tough. Uh, if anybody follows that, it's not something we talk about much on the show, but it's certainly something that's been a big issue. Um, and uh, we can talk about that more uh, in future episodes. And we'll talk about it, I imagine, with, with Jared on Tuesday. The, the, um, so there's a, there is a ton of immunity, a ton of protection provided for uh, government officials, whether they are police officers. Obviously, that's the most high profile situation, but it applies to all uh, government officers. There's a case that was argued this past week regarding a road in Will County that was allegedly not properly maintained and four children died and they got out on immunity. Um, and and so we we may talk about that next week. Dan and I got to decide what we're going to talk about next week. And there were a ton of oral arguments this week in the Illinois Appellate Court, in the there Supreme were. Court, and in the Seventh Circuit. We so will. We've got, a, we've got a lot of choices to make there and some very, very interesting arguments. But that's for next week. But for today, I think the and Pat and I will go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. And, and so we'll, I was we'll, just going to say, uh, Pat and I will will sift through. We we will sift through. We'll come up with the cases. But I'm just giving you a preview of that. Those cases may be coming down the pike. Uh, very tragic situations um, with difficult decisions for courts to make. Um, but Van Dyke is, is uh, a case that is tragic, and the police officer was in an, obviously in a difficult situation, not knowing what to do, but then he didn't do anything. And so can he be liable in that situation? Because it seems that uh, he at least had a chance to, to save this woman's life. Um, it's not assured, to be sure, but a chance to save this woman's life had he, had he acted promptly. And one of the ironic things in this case was at the beginning of oral arguments, uh, the appellant's uh, network went down. And so that was the beginning of it, that they uh, had to deal with his technical difficulties in a case where, again, you have an open line. And I mean, it just kind of, you know, just kind of focused again on the on the issues here. It, it, it did. It, and where. It's just a really tragic situation, and it, it seems that there should be some remedy, but it doesn't seem that there's going to be a remedy coming uh, to skip to the end of the show with predictions sure to go wrong. Um, right. with, do you have anything else to add on this one, Dan? No. All right. With that, we will go. We'll take our first break and come back with Cortez versus uh, Indiana University. As Pat mentioned, the second case today is Cortez versus Indiana University, and we're also going to cover another case uh, with medical records uh, for our loyal loyal listener and uh, friend Sarah Pasha. This this segment might be particularly interesting to her. In Cortez, uh, the Cortezes and a law firm that represented them in a medical malpractice case filed a second case. Uh, the second case was against Indiana University Health. And it's two physical therapists accusing the therapist of altering medical records and concealing the alterations when testifying about them in the earlier malpractice case. The Marion Superior Court dismissed the second case, finding both that the under the Medical Malpractice Act, the court lacks jurisdiction over the subject matter of the second case because it had to deal with medical records and not the actual provision of medical services. And the complaint failed to state a claim on which relief could be granted. 
the Court of Appeals in Cortez versus Indiana University Health, Inc., 151 Northeast 3rd, 332, Indiana Courts of Appeals, 2020, uh, transfer pending, affirmed. The plaintiffs petitioned the court to accept jurisdiction over the appeal. And one of the unique things about Indiana law, from my understanding, is that you uh, can have hearings uh, for the transfer to be granted by the court. And that's what took place last week in these oral arguments. The appellate court affirmed based on Rule 12b-1, which is a motion to dismiss uh, and is procedural, so did not really reach the 12b-6 issues. The appellate court looked at Gordon, a case that was decided by the uh, Indiana Supreme Court, and held that they conclude that the maintenance of health care records in this case, including their alteration prior to the filing of the proposed complaint alleging malpractice against IU Health, fell within the scope of the MMA. At oral arguments last week, counsel for IU argued that the records had been altered well before the malpractice claim and had been disclosed in a prior personal injury case by the plaintiffs. And the plaintiffs have filed a number of cases. Uh, and and in, in Cortez, uh, the uh, justices uh, uh, went through a lot of various alternative scenarios with the appellants in this case. Uh, they uh, looked at the purpose of the Medical Malpractice Act, which is to ensure that medical providers have access to affordable medical malpractice insurance. The justices asked if there was differences uh, during the oral arguments, if the alteration occurred while the therapy was taking place. Uh, they also asked about uh, if the alterations occurred during treatment. Uh, look at the records, going to tr tr uh, transpose, and, and doesn't timing matter of them. Uh, the justices asked a number of, of uh, alternative hypos, and, and we're really trying to dig into, I believe, uh, from listening to the case, that uh, there was questions that, that, again, had to do with when the alterations took place. There were 87 words, I believe, or 97 words that were altered in the medical records. As noted, uh, some of the justices were asking questions about the fact that these records had been altered well before this medical malpractice uh, activity took place. As noted, there was a personal injury case. Um, and one of the things that uh, wasn't in the record below uh, from the appellate court decision uh, but that came up uh, during the oral arguments is that the appellant constantly referred to uh, some kind some kind of impugning to the uh, victim's uh, wife uh, some kind of activity that actually caused him to be injured and I don't I didn't see anywhere in the record Pat, where uh, that was actually addressed or what what that was about but it, it, to me it was kind of a an interesting thing and I wanted to know a little bit more uh, so uh, that's that that's the case and again it, it, uh, I think Indiana, uh, the Supreme Court in recent months has looked at uh, medical records and what constitutes a medical malpractice uh, action under the Medical Malpractice Act. Uh, Pat, you wrote about uh, another medical records case that came up in the Cortez case, the McKenzie case. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that case and uh, what that, that case was about? Sure, Dan. I, I really think we need to set up a couple of procedural things first to understand the Medical Malpractice Act in Indiana very briefly because it's complex. 
The basic idea under Indiana's Medical Malpractice Act is that there is a $250,000 cap in money you can get from the doctor himself or herself or the medical provider, hospital, whatever. And then from there, you can Which get- Which is a, pretty low. Well, well, just wait. There's more. Um, you then can get an additional- it used to be up to a million and it's since gone over a million. I don't practice medical malpractice, but it's gone up, I think, to 1.8 million or so, something like that, maybe one, one and three quarter million from the patient's compensation fund, which is operated by the Department of Insurance. And so uh, the question in the, in the McKenzie case, Dan mentioned, the, the fund, the, the patient's compensation fund appeared in that case, intervened to say the records in that, that the claim in that case was not within the Medical Malpractice Act. So whether something is within or without, within or outside of the Medical Malpractice Act has a lot to do with what protection the doctor has in terms of the liability limits, but also what responsibility the patient's compensation fund is going to have to pay. And so when Dan mentioned 12B1, Indiana essentially follows the federal, largely follows the federal trial rules. So 12B1 is a subject matter jurisdiction dismissal. In other words, this case did not fall within the Medical Malpractice Act. It's it's something else. It's also important to know in Indiana, there is no first party spoliation claim. Now, there was this real distinction that was being drawn between appellant's counsel and appellee's counsel. Appellant's counsel called it alteration. Appellee's counsel called it supplementation. Uh, it was it was uh, conspicuous in the area. Supplement, we supplemented the record with these 87 words. And those 87 words seem to be that essentially saying that either the patient, the plaintiff's d deceased husband was non-compliant or that he hadn't, uh, that he had done something to affect his ability to recover from this injury. And Dan mentioned the timeline of this is, is that he gets treatment sometime in 2012, sometime thereafter, the, the records are supplemented or altered depending upon your perspective. And then there is a personal injury claim that's filed. And then sometime later, a year or so later in 2014, the original medical malpractice claim is brought. And then sometime after that, the second claim is brought when it becomes apparent that the medical, um, the medical records had been altered or supplemented. Uh, and so that's the, that's the order of things. And the court, the appellate court held that it was, and they brought dismissal motions on both 12B1 and 12B6 the appellate court granted it on 12B1 only, uh, kind of said, we don't have to reach the 12B6 issue. There was an issue about that in the, appellate, in the Supreme Court as to which one they had done it under. They kept maintained that it was under both uh, in the Supreme Court, should be dismissed under both. So there was an issue on that. Dan also mentioned the McKenzie case and that I uh, into which the fund intervened. The McKenzie case is a case where Someone, not a medical provider, but uh, someone in the X or in the, uh, I believe it was the radiology department, saw a scan or a study and shared it with the uh, plaintiff's employer that caused her to get adverse, caused her to suffer an adverse employment action as a result of sharing this medical record. Um, and the question was, does that, does that have anything to do with medical malpractice? This is someone who was unauthorized, this woman named Gray, I believe was her name, that took the records improperly and gave them to somebody she had no right to give them to. And so the question was, was there a standalone cause of action? And if there was, um, what does it fall within or outside of the Medical Malpractice Act? Uh, the, 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 the great, one of the great questions or suggestions came from Justice Slaughter 
when he said, well, when you guys get discovered that you you, you do this, because there's a policy concern here that essentially if you get the, what's the, what's the disincentive if this is with, of, of this being within the medical, if, if you just turn around, all you can, all you're looking at is $250,000 in, in damages, whether you destroy these records or not. Uh, and so there's no incentive to be honest about these records. And so if you just go ahead and settle, like, a, do you just fold like a cheap suit when the uh, when the opportunity arises in order to avoid the um, avoid further liability and then send it off to the patient's compensation fund? Is that the right is that the right thing to do from a policy perspective? You know, the purpose of the Medical Malpractice Act, as Dan mentioned, was to try to provide an avenue to have reasonable malpractice insurance. Uh, you know, for doctors that are making honest mistakes, that are that are you know, that sometimes medical professionals, like all professionals, there there may be negligence, and if there is, how do we uh, properly compensate funds? Well, po- properly compensate patients while balancing the ability of doctors to practice and not be subject to massive uh, liability. And so these two cases kind of come in in uh, tandem. Uh, within a month or so of each other about medical records. And there's this case called Gordon that kind of said medical records are outside of the act, but these cases seem to really test where that line is. And as often we see appellate courts or and, and particularly courts of final review, like the Indiana Supreme Court are in, interested in line drawing. Are we drawing a line? And if we are, where are we drawing the line? How are we drawing the line? What should the line be based on? Should it be a totality of the circumstances or should it be a bright line? All kinds of things about lines. And that's what this case really is about is where does that line get drawn? And uh, or is it is it something they have to kick back to the legislature to let them draw the line? Uh, or have they drawn a sufficiently bright line within the within the act itself to decide whether this is within or outside of the Medical Malpractice Act? Uh, this really, you know, I have many partners that practice medical malpractice, and one of the, you know, one of the big issues, you know, that can often come up is is alteration, supplementation, changes to medical records, who accessed records when, what they did with them, uh, these kinds of things that can really tell a story, uh, and it may implicate or it may exculpate a doctor or other staff, medical staff from a particular instance of of malpractice. Uh, the records are, are critical, uh, and if they get changed, then I say I use that neutral word changed uh, for whatever reason that can that can lead to motive. And so they've tried to draw an adverse inference. They tried to argue for an adverse inference, which in Illinois would be an IPI 5.01 instruction. Um, that's what they would try to argue. They were trying to impute motive or impute motive, I should say, to the person that made these changes, which is why the the, the uh, was pushing back, said, "Hold it! They made these supplementations. He called them, you know, a year and a half or two years before there even was a suggestion of potential malpractice." To which the appellant said, "You knew you'd screwed up. Uh, you knew you'd uh, had provided improper care to this person, so you were covering yourself well before the claim was even brought. That doesn't prove anything." So, I mean. A jury may have to sort that out in whatever kind of claim. We don't know. The Supreme Court's going to have to sort that one out. Uh, and that's what the case is about. It's a really, really interesting case because you've got all of these issues moving around, including, as we're going to talk about in our rule of the week, transfer, which was up for grabs because unlike in McKenzie where transfer had been granted, in this case, 
transfer had not been granted, yet they heard all our argument, both on the merits as well as whether they should hear the case at all. So, so we're going to talk about that, as I said, in our rule of the week. Dan, did, did, we, did we cover the issues here in, in, in this Cortez case? I think we did. And as you mentioned, a lot of uh, justice questions to the appellee were about the bright line test and where it uh, where it went. And uh, the uh, I think both parties were not arguing for the overturn of, of Gordon. With that, we'll take a, our second break and be back with our third segment. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back on segment three of episode 12 of the podium and panel podcast. And Dan, now we're going to talk about Wadsworth uh, versus cross, which is an argument in the seventh circuit. Dan, why don't you tell us about the case? Thank you, Pat. This is a uh, latest in the seventh circuits focus on the fair debt collections practice act in the last uh, several years. Uh, the seventh circuit has increasingly looked at this, uh, act and the behaviors under it. Uh, and it governs, the Fair Debt Collections Practice Act governs how uh, creditors can go about collecting and providing notice to uh, debtors that owe money. When enacted, Congress expressed that the purpose uh, to eliminate abusive debt collection practices by debt collectors to ensure that those debt collectors who refrain from using abusive debt collection practices are not competitively disadvantaged and to pr promote consistent state action to protect consumers against debt collection abuses. Under the FDCPA, debt collectors have to follow certain processes and give notice to debtors and their rights under the FDCPA to contest and other things. In this case, the court very qu quickly jumped in with both advocates and sua sponte raised issues of standing. Uh, the counsel for the plaintiff was subjected uh, before he said his name to a demand he addressed standing, and he did so. Uh, the facts in this matter is that the plaintiff in the underlying did, case- Did he, did, did he do so? <laughs> he, he did not. He, he did not. And, he tried. And, and then there was a-, a he, he tried, uh, and, and then there was a, a, a barrage of questions about uh, the, the view of Judge Sykes that this was merely a statutory damages case. And that uh, the, that was it. There was no actual injury to the to the plaintiff, um, and he kept arguing that she was uh, emotionally distressed and embarrassed and humiliated uh, by receiving this notice that she was unemployed and all these things. What happened here was that the plaintiff entered into an employment agreement uh, with her employer PRA, and it included a signing bonus to be paid back in two events. One is that she voluntarily resigned or that she was terminated for cause. However, she was terminated and subjected to termination, not to either of those reasons, but due to a reduction in force at her employer. And her employer immediately referred the repayment of the signing bonus to a collection firm, Cross. 
In this complaint, plaintiff at paragraph 23 alleged injuries due to receiving the notice, as mentioned, with not information about her rights and suffering humiliation and embarrassment as a result. Judges on the panel were very skeptical that there was subject matter jurisdiction here. Again, Judge Sykes especially kept asking what injury uh, she suffered. Counsel said the injury of not receiving information, that she had a right to contest the disputed debt. Uh, The panel repeatedly stated that that was a statutory injury and uh, kept pressing uh, counsel uh, with respect to uh, why we were here. Uh, There was also a discussion uh, and, and the parties were pressed about whether this even falls under the Fair Debt Co- uh, Collections Practices Act. The uh, lawyers for the appellee uh, tried to, I would say, uh, box this into uh, a resulting use for uh, personal debt and not sure that the ju- judges were buying that. Um, Pat, anything I missed and, and thoughts on, on this uh, FDCPA case that Seventh Circuit seems to be uh, focusing on more and more in recent months? Well, thanks, Dan. Uh, I don't know how much you missed, but uh, the judge, the judges sure thought the parties missed something. Uh, the first thing is, is they thought that the appellant, the uh, who was the debt collector, missed something, namely standing, as you as you mentioned. And uh, <laughs> Chief Judge Sykes in particular was all over uh, both appellant and appellee's counsel about how is their standing given our decisions both in Madison versus Casillas, as well as the more recent decisions that we discussed when we discussed the Thornley decision back on episode two or three um, from mid-December regarding uh, damages in the FDCPA. But more fundamentally, Judge Rovner <laughs> asked, uh, why is this a debt? Because Dan mentioned the debt, the the repayment of the signing bonus, which was what, $6,000 or so, was only due if she was dismissed for cause or voluntarily resigned. And neither of those things had happened. And Judge Rovner, you know, uh, is just like, why is there a debt here? She And this apparently was not raised by Appley. Uh as a defense to the debt, that there just wasn't a debt because they had let her go for force reduction, nothing to do with cause or voluntary resignation. And, and so that, there was that. And then Dan mentioned also whether this, and this was an issue that was raised by the appellant. And, and I think if they get to the merits of the case, I think this is a pr- place where the appellee has a real problem. The FDCPA only applies to consumer debts. This is a contract. A contract for employment. And Judge Chief Judge Sykes pointed this out. He said, what was the object of this contract? The object of this contract was not that Miss, uh, I, I forget the plaintiff's name, what her, what she did with the money and paying for Wadsworth, what she did in paying the, uh, her medical bills and other consumer activities. Rather, it was uh, compensation for the employment, sir, the services she provided uh, at this medical facility. Uh, so, you could turn anything into the into an FDCPA claim if what the person did is turn around and use it for consumer for consumer goods, buy their groceries, pay for medical bills, and so forth. So the the they that was one finding that the district court had that this was a consumer debt subject to the FDCPA, and and Judge Chief Judge Sykes didn't seem to be buying that one either. 
um, that that this was not a, a a consumer. This didn't trigger the FDCPA at all. There was also questions about whether the FDCPA protections only apply when the debt is due and owing in the stat, but the statute doesn't say when that or when it's in default rather, but doesn't say what default means. Uh, this debt was due immediately upon her leaving employment, but immediately has been interpreted to be as long as a week. And in this case, the debt was turned over to the cross firm four days thereafter, and they sent the letter, which would be within that week. So therefore, she wasn't in default at the time. Judge Rovner didn't seem very moved by that. She said, no, she owed it the moment. If she, if she owed the money, she owed the money the moment she left, if, if she owed it at all. Um, so there's also that question. So there's other, there are protections going both ways, both the debt collector yep. as well as for the consumer. Uh, obviously, the focus is on the consumer, but also there are when these these debt practices apply, and so or when these protections apply uh, to uh, to a to a debt collector as to whether they even are a debt collector under the act. Because in order to be a debt collector, you have to be collecting a debt that is in quote default, whatever that means. Uh, so that's another question they're going to have to uh, wrestle with. Uh, we're going to get close to our prediction, sure to go wrong. I don't think they're going to read any of that. Right. This case is not going to. This case is getting kicked on standing. Uh, I, I don't. I don't have much of a doubt about that. I would be very surprised, based upon that questioning, that they don't kick this case and say, under our precedent, this case yep. doesn't doesn't state an injury beyond a statutory injury. You know, perhaps you can go to state court. This case arose out of Wisconsin, so I don't know what standing rules are in Wisconsin state court. As we've discussed previously, that would be more than sufficient to file a stand, have a claim in Illinois state court. I don't know about Wisconsin, but I, I think that's where this case is is headed. Uh, very. Uh, um, this is another example of the Seventh Circuit. Be prepared for standing. Be prepared for them raising things the parties didn't raise. Be prepared for anything. Know the record cold if you're in front of these people because they know the record, they know the issues and they are going and you're going to get them and it's going to come fast and it's going to come hard. Uh, and, and they're going to want answers. It, uh, it is a, it is a, it is a it, tough place if you're not ready. Very true. And, and at one point the appellant and his, uh, main, uh, advocacy was asked about what the pleading said and some other things and had to come up back and rebuttal, uh, to address it. And, uh, yeah, that's true, Pat, you need to be prepared in front of the seventh circuit, regardless of who's on that panel, because they, they go where they want to go. Right. And yeah, they aren't going to so, be, st- not that they're raising issues that aren't, aren't relevant, just that they are going to raise, they're going to look at the pleadings. They're going to look at the briefs themselves, and then they're going to make their own judgments about some of the issues that they want to raise. Um, and, and that's what, that's what happened to these advocates, uh, this this time, um, that's, that's right. With that, do we want to go to? Uh, so you mentioned predictions to go. I did, I did. So where are we going now? Yep, we're, we're we are at prediction sure uh, sure to go wrong. You mentioned that, and Pat, we're now four for four in prediction sure to go wrong. Last week we covered MHM, and we're correct when we unhappily predicted the outcome of MHM Correctional Services Inc. versus Evanston. Insurance company, in which the court affirmed the holding of the trial court that the insurer had a duty to defend. This was the farm 
a policy that was issued. No, no, uh, this, was, this was the prison case. Not only to the catch-all. Oh, that's right. I, excuse me. This is the prison case. And a court looked not only to the catch-all pleading, but the definition of services and the endorsement. And uh, if, I can, also, if I can speak uh, to that just for a second. In episode two. Go ahead. I'm, we're having a bit of a delay here, folks, because bad internet. So um, apologize for some of the crosstalk we don't <laughs> usually have. But the the definition of services and the endorsement, boy, this is exactly what we talked about, about this is, this is a medical malpractice policy. This is a professional liability policy. And the way they read services is essentially as broad as you can to be the services you're supposed to provide under your contract, nothing to do with the quality, beyond, well beyond the quality of those services. And it, it essentially is, has this company indemnifying the insured for doing things they were either contractually or by regulation or statute required to do in any instance. This is essentially insuring their business, um, which is not what insurance is. The very basis of insurance is a doctrine called fortuity. That's why breaches of contract are not insured or insurable. Um, this is essentially what it is. You can't have a fortuity in this circumstance, in, in my view. And, and it's just... It, it, it's a very frustrating decision from that perspective because it really seems to be undoing what insurance is, uh, and that's fortuity. Uh, sorry, Dan, you want to go ahead with the next uh, other another update on a case that we had? Sure, and, and not a problem. Um, and, and I agree with you. It's uh, MHM is is bad law, but it's going to affect a lot of uh, insurers, at least in in our jurisdiction. Uh, Pat, we also, in episode two, we discussed the BIPA case, Thornley versus Clearview AI. You mentioned it briefly earlier in the podcast, in which the Seventh Circuit decided that the putative class action should be sent back to state court. Uh, Clearview last week indicated it plans to file a petition for writ of certiorari with the Supreme Court. Um, and with that, uh, we'll keep an eye on that case, of course, and report if it gets granted. Let's make predictions sure to go wrong on the cases we discovered we covered today. We already talked about Wadsworth, and I agree with you. I think that's uh, that's getting kicked. I don't think they're uh, going to uh, find any jurisdiction there. Um, let's go back to uh, the first case today: uh, State of Van Dyke versus Milner. Uh, make a prediction, and then we'll we'll talk to, uh, in our special episode as well. I, I think I think I think a state versus Van Dyke is going to get affirmed. Um, I don't think there's a Supreme Court case that the court surely thought was very close to this one. Um, uh, I think it's Lang versus Village of Palatine. Um, I, I think that they're going to affirm on that basis uh, and uh, hold that there is no cause of action. Dan, what do you think? I, I agree with you. Just listening to the oral argument, I don't I don't see it coming out differently. And that brings us to that Cortez, brings us to Cortez versus, versus IU. Right. And uh, Dan, are they going to grant transfer in this case? And uh, along with McKinsey, what are they going to do? I think they'll grant transfer here because I think there's enough confusion and there, there's enough uh, demand, I think, to add some clarity around this. Uh, uh, but I, I'm not sure uh, that they will. Uh, find that that this is subject to the Medical Malpractice Act, the the uh, the change as as you referred to it here. 
I, I, I think uh, I think you're right. Uh, they're going to have to draw the line somewhere. I think they may take the cases together with McKinsey, and they may put uh, they may put this case on they may put it on the medical malpractice side of things because it did relate in some way to the treatment, even though she had he had completed treatment by the time they made these alterations or supplementations changes. But uh, they're going to draw that line somewhere in there, take both cases and try to give some clarity both to counsel as to the, as well as to medical providers in Indiana as to what to do. And that brings us to uh, Indiana Rule of Appellate Procedure 57. Dan, why don't you tell us about that rule? Sure. Appellate Procedure 57 is the Indiana version of Petition for Leave to Appeal. We talked about the Illinois Supreme Court Rule 315. Uh, last week, which is the Illinois Supreme Court rule. And Procedure 57 in Indiana is similar to the Rule 315 uh, and is the Indiana Supreme Court rule that governs leave to appeal from the appellate courts of Indiana to the Sup Indiana Supreme Court. And we may occasionally refer on the show to a PLA, which is a petition for leave to appeal. Uh, like Illinois, except for appeals as a matter of right, the Indiana Supreme Court uh, has broad discretion on what cases it will hear. Uh, like the Illinois Supreme Court, the Indian uh, Supreme Court receives thousands of PLAs a year, but grants a small percentage. And as we talked about earlier in the segment, uh, the uh, Indiana uh, Supreme Court rules are a bit different because uh, there's a petition for the transfer itself. And as we talked about, Cortez was a case where uh, it had not been granted yet the transfer. So, Pat... What are your thoughts on Rule 57? And, and, and corollary to that, one of the arguments, the, the appellee was arguing for transfer not to be granted. And one of the justices asked, based upon your argument, are you abandoning your objection to the uh, grant of transfer? And he said, no, 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 we don't think you should grant transfer. But if you do, you should draw a line and help us all out. Um, and that, so it was, it was interesting. The other thing is, is that when a case before an appellate court or when a petition for leave to or petition for transfer is is granted the appellate court opinion is vacated until and then the supreme court then issues its ruling in a situation where uh transfer is not granted that appellate court opinion if it's published remains good law until you know whatever the supreme court does so there's there is this and so you end up with this dual argument of number 1 should we grant transfer and number 2 if we do uh what 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 should we do on the merits? Uh, so that was a very interesting part of this argument, where you got to see the sausage getting made in terms of the thinking of the justices in terms of granting transfer in the first place, uh, as opposed to simply as opposed to simply the merits of the case. Usually, in, in Illinois, at the United States Supreme Court, they've already decided that we're taking this case. And we're just going to talk about merits. Uh, but, or procedure if that's an issue. But in this case, they were talking about, are we taking this thing at all? Uh, especially given the McKenzie case that also they were hearing on a very similar, though not identical issues. With that, Dan, I think we're done for this week. I think so. And uh, remember, our podcast will come out on Tuesday evening, episode 13, with Jared Beasley regarding the estate of Van Dyke. And then we'll be back for episode 14, uh, a regular episode next Sunday as we try to catch up on all of the appellate court uh, arguments this past week. And God help us if there's more this week. We're going to be uh, an embarrassment of riches the next couple of weeks. 
Thank you and have a great week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.